Lord, we come this morning recognizing that we need to hear from You. That the ministers whom You call and ordain and gift to preach Your Word are but broken jars of clay. And yet, Lord, You fill them up. You speak through them to Your people. You speak to them as Christ preaches to His people. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that You would lead us once again beside the quiet waters. That You would once again, Lord, lay out that banquet table. That You would anoint our heads with oil. That You would overflow our cups. Lord, that You would once again, by Your Word, restore our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I realize that we are not making a giant leap into chapter 3, but upon reflecting on these verses, I had originally intended for us to go on to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, but as I began to study and look at this, I felt like we needed to really ask ourselves some questions of this text and see if it might not prove profitable to our souls. So I'm just going to read from chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. You will remember... Back with me, whether you've listened to the sermons that we've been going through over the past few weeks or if you, we have the privilege of you visiting with us today. Possibly you've read through Ephesians in the past and you will know that Paul, after in chapter one, taking to us to that great zenith of Christ supreme, preeminent over all things, then begins to unpack that and remind us of our helpless condition, our hopeless condition especially speaking to Gentiles, of which the vast majority of people in this room would qualify. We are the nations. We are not directly, ethnically descended from Abraham. And so as we listen to this word from Ephesians, we hear this great hope that those who appeared to be cut off and kept out of the promises without hope and without God have the great privilege of not only being united to the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, but that they themselves are being built up into a temple. Us. No longer this temple in Jerusalem built with hands, but rather being built by Christ up into this great, wonderful structure where Christ is both the foundation and its greatest and chief end and focus. Where one day we've been promised that in Revelation, Christ and His Father, our God, will dwell in the midst of it and be its light. And even now, when we gather together as the corporate people of God, we have some glimmer, some taste of what that really might look like. Or at least we should have some taste and glimmer. Paul said all that. And you would think after having said all that, that now he's ready. He's now, for that reason, therefore, 
And now we're ready. We're ready for him to start telling us. So what are we supposed to be like, Paul? Tell us. And Paul appears to be perfectly ready to do that. But then he stops. That's why most of your Bibles, there's that extended hyphen there after Gentiles. And if you go down to chapter 4, verse 1, look at what Paul says there. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And then he will begin to start to give imperatives. But for some reason, when Paul heard the language, I, Paul, a prisoner of and for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, he stopped and went a completely different direction. He starts to basically think back and he begins to wax eloquent on how he was an illustration, if you will, of the gospel of grace. How all the things he was talking about are demonstrated in him. And that's all of what chapter 3 is going to take us through. Paul talking about his ministry, his call, how God called him the least of all the saints. He'll tell us in just a few verses to be the called one to the Gentiles. That he was committed to go as a Jew to reach his brothers and sisters throughout the nations. And so it profits us here to begin to ask ourselves why Paul pauses, why he brings us to this place of reflection. I want us to look then this morning at Paul as the prisoner of Christ. And some way we might look at this, if you can kind of keep this in mind as we look at this, is, is that we often in the Christian life always want to look at the conclusion rather than reflecting on the means. And if you understand what I mean by that, it's this. We often want to look at the finished product rather than looking at the reality which is what is producing the finished product. I can still remember going to a conference when I was a, a young man and they gave us these little buttons and I wouldn't necessarily prescribe all the teachings of the particular individual that I went to hear speak, but I did like the button and continued to appreciate it. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. That's a good moniker for the people of God to operate under. Please be patient. People under construction here. So sometimes there's going to be a pothole. Sometimes you're going to extend the right hand of fellowship and draw back a nub. That happens. And what I want us to begin to look at is the life of Paul. Is Why does Paul become this person that we are so fixated with at times? We look at him and say, this is the great man of the faith. Why? Is it really Paul? Is Paul's letters about Paul? When Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, is he trying to get us to focus on Paul? Or is there something more here? Are the means, are the realities that are going on in Paul's life what really should captivate us? And not Paul. Paul's an instrument. And as all folks who are called to serve God are instruments of His grace. So the first point I want us to look at is maybe us thinking about why was Paul a prisoner? I'm going to go ahead and confess with you that for a few minutes we're going to 
take some tours through the Bible because I really want us to look and to consider these things. And I don't want to just tell you what the Bible says. I want to stick your nose right in the Bible and let the Bible tell you what it says. So turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided in the pew, hopefully close to you, and you can grab one of those and turn with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. When you're there, if you all look up for me so I can know that you're there, and then we'll read. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So we ask the question, as Paul read those words, as he wrote them, I am a prisoner of Christ. Paul is reflecting on the fact that he's a prisoner because his God, his Savior, his Lord, had enslaved him, had brought him out of the bondage of his attack against Christ, and had enslaved him in the cause of Christ and for Christ. Now, for us to really fully understand how Paul is thinking here, we have to think in some ways of what Paul is not. In some ways... This is how we argue ourselves to the truth sometimes. We have to basically get to the truth by saying what it's not. In some ways, this is exactly how we talk about God. Because oftentimes we have to say God is not this, God is not that, because we really can't fully express all that God is. So we say that God is not darkness. God is light. We'll fully define what light means in that. It's, it's but an illustration. We, we, we struggle and strain to understand an infinite, eternal, all-powerful being. So different than ourselves. So it helps us in that regard, but it also helps us to think about what we're prisoners of. Notice this. 
Paul was not a prisoner of Rome. We just read in Acts, in our reading, that Paul says, I'm not under trial here for breaking Rome's law. I've done nothing wrong in the sight of Rome. He also wasn't on trial because he'd done anything to break Jewish law. He wasn't on trial for that either. Notice Paul's very clear to, to designate, I am not on trial for these things. He wasn't a prisoner of Nero, even though we heard him appeal to Caesar. And Nero was the Caesar at that time. He appeals to him, but not because he somehow sees himself as the prisoner of Nero either. He just merely is using the mechanical means, if you will, of the state to accomplish God's ends. So he was not a prisoner of those things. Paul was also, and I think this may even be more instructive to us today, he was not a prisoner to his past. Paul did not lay around thinking about his past in the sense of I'm weighed down with it. I I wish I could go back to it. Because understand this, if Paul had basically stood before the Jews at that point and said, you know what, this Jesus thing, I got a little wrong. If he'd just been willing to say to the Galatians, Galatians, the Judaizers haven't bewitched you at all. Let's start circumcising everybody again. Let's just get on with back to the old mosaics. If he just would have been willing to play ball. Paul would not be in chains. Paul also was not weighed down with guilt and grief from his former life. So he wasn't enslaved to his past in the sense that he desired to go back to it to be the Pharisee of Pharisees. He also was not enslaved by guilt of, do you remember what I did? I persecuted the way I was... Even when Paul speaks about it, he does not speak as one who's weighed down. He speaks as one who states, this is the reality of what I was called out of and given the privilege of escaping. And so that we can look at that, turn with me just one book over if you're in Ephesians, one, one letter over to Philippians. And I just want us to look and hear what Paul says here about these two things. Listen to what Paul says. And you'll see both his past in the reflections of both ways I've looked at it, both his former life and all its quote-unquote glory. He's not desiring to return to it. And also he's not weighed down with the guilt of what's happened in the past. Listen to what Paul says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Isn't that interesting? To write the same things. Told you this before. I've probably written you about it before and I'm writing you again. Same thing. We'll tell it to you again. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And let me just say this. Bless our English translations, but we really need to understand what that word really means. And I won't tell you what it really means because some of you would be greatly offended by what it really means. But let me just say this. It means basically where the outhouse is in more graphic ways. That's what Paul says. I count all of that like the outhouse and all the contents of the outhouse. That's what it is to me. And listen to what he goes on to say. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you hear Paul? Do you hear what he's telling you? This ain't got anything to do with me. It's got everything to do with Christ. It's not so much that I've laid hold of Christ, but that he's laid hold of me and bound me in the chains of gospel glory. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Let us be clear here then what we're saying. Paul was not the superhuman Christian. If you think that every day of Paul's life he woke up and said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Bring on the beatings. Bring on the shipwrecks. Let's get bit by a snake this morning because that's how we suffer for Jesus in all its glory. All these things happen to Paul. And see, what I want you to begin to get wrapped up in is this. How does a frail, weak human being who we're told from history was kind of bent up and gnarled, wasn't all that great a preacher, we're told. Paul was not eloquent of speech. How does this man become this person that we all look to and say, what a man of faith. It's because he wasn't looking at other people and saying, what a man of faith. He was looking at Christ and saying, what a Savior. And we need to hear that even this morning and understand that he sought to have the reality of the gospel put before himself continuously so that what consumed him was Christ. What motivated him was Christ. What controlled him was Christ. And that was a daily, moment-by-moment moment reality that he had to live in. Empowered and enabled by Christ. See, isn't that interesting? Everything Christ calls me to, the only way it will ever happen in my life is if Christ makes it happen in my life. That doesn't mean I don't do anything. It means that if I start doing things, thinking that I'm doing those things apart from Christ, or that this is my call, Jesus did his part, now let me get on with doing my part. 
Jesus did all he could, and now I'm going to do all I can. And somehow those things are working together. I have a friend of mine who talks about his conversion experience and his life as a Christian. He says, basically, this is my life. I did everything I could, and God did everything he could, and God always won. And that's the testimony of grace. Not how great we are, how great God is in us and oftentimes despite us. We need to be people captivated like Paul by grace, by the gospel and its power, by the spirit who moves as he wishes and pleases in the lives and the hearts of men and women. The second thing Paul says now is, I am a prisoner of and for Christ. Why was Paul a prisoner? We've looked at that. Now he's a prisoner of and for Christ. We read in Acts that Jesus tells Ananias, Paul will know now that he's going to go out to the Gentiles. He's going to preach to the Jews and the Gentiles and to those who are far off. But he's also going to know how much he's going to suffer. And see, in some ways, what Paul is saying to us is this. Christ binds us to himself so that we are able to suffer for him. If he didn't, we'd never do it. Which one of us willingly just says, "Okay, let's go suffer today. Unless we've got some kind of mental disorder. Right. Most people, when we hear them saying, you know, we we, we've diagnosed this and called it the martyr complex, right? People who always feel like I'm always having to sacrifice myself for you. I mean, we look at those people and say, these people need help. That's not what Paul had. Paul did not have a martyr complex. He didn't feel like, oh, I'm, I've got to be the one that suffers in any kind of distorted way. Rather, he looked at himself being united to the one who had suffered. And he said, I am his prisoner. And what he calls me to that's what I do. Not in my strength, but his strength. And so we look and see that, that Paul is called to suffer. And he, he's called for breaking. And he's telling them right now, what's reflecting in his mind is, what I was called to suffer for is the gospel. What I was called to suffer for is this great proclamation, this great event that occurred. And oftentimes, men and women, we think about the gospel and we want to talk about all the realities of the gospel. Well, you know, the gospel and so, you know, well, you're doing this and you're doing this and you're not doing this. And of course, you act this way and you don't act that way. That's not the gospel. Those things are the fruit of the gospel. What Paul is suffering for, what he's a prisoner for, is the events of the reality that God took on human flesh and came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a real true death, rose from the dead, and now and has promised to return for his people. Paul was on trial and a prisoner of that, of the gospel, of the event, of the truth of that. And we need to once again reflect and remember this. This isn't about a bunch of feel-good stuff. This isn't about us coming together and saying, Yahoo, we're like-minded. We all educate the same way. We all dress the same way. We all live the same way. We all look the same way. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the event of Christ who calls people who don't look 
the same, who probably don't educate the same way for a variety of reasons, who don't do a lot of things exactly the same. And he calls them together and says, you are one because of what I have done. Paul says, I suffer for that. I'm a prisoner for that reason. And he also will tell us that he's called to suffer. If you look down in verse 7 of chapter 3, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. Paul was called to suffer as a minister of the gospel. He had a particular vocation and call. And under that, we know that it was because of his zeal, because of his commitment to God's glory. Paul was constantly suffering so that his zeal would never be misplaced. I, Paul, suffer and I'm zealous for what? For God. Not for my own glory. Not look at, look at Paul, but rather see Christ in Paul and follow Paul as he follows Christ. And I want to say this to us. Paul was a man who believed that God's glory was big. And therefore, he was willing to go all over the place to see it spread. And he suffered for that. You know, Paul could have found him a nice little place and got him a nice little church and he could have lived in some obscure part of the wilderness and people could have wandered out there to see him. But Paul went right into the meccas of Roman culture. And he spoke against the realities that were keeping people enslaved and promoted the hope and the glory of the gospel. And also, as a prisoner of Christ, he was called to suffer because of what he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. And listen to what it says. You, however, speaking to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Those are strong words. All those who seek to live a godly life will be, not might be, not could be, will be persecuted. And finally, if you look at that first verse, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. This is what I want you to see. The reality of the gospel breaking out in Paul's life made him a missional man. Do you understand what I mean by that? Paul became a man who said, missions is my life. The proclamation of the gospel is my life. Everything else becomes a means of proclaiming the gospel, which is the reality of the glory of God. My work, my play, everything I'm doing should have some aspect of gospel reflection on it. Because I'm seeking to win the lost. I'm seeking to encourage the faithful. And the means of that is the gospel. So Paul becomes a missional man He's empowered to mission. His union with Christ made him willing to pay the cost for the truth of the gospel that Gentiles were a part. Remember what I just said earlier. I want to come back here now. He reflects and says, on behalf 
of you Gentiles. Realize everything Paul has just said, everything he said is the Gentiles are part of the people of God. And I won't back off that. And I won't back off its realities. And you won't make me. I'll die before you make me say Gentiles are not a part. Christ came for the nations. And I want you to hear this loud and clear, men and women. I'm afraid at times we forget that. Because see, for those of us that have the privilege of being raised in the church and the privilege of growing up hearing the Word preached and getting to go to Sunday school and getting to have Christian people around us, we now operate much like at times National Judaism did during Paul's day. We want to think like we think, live like we live, and we want other people to come into our midst that don't push boundaries, that don't mess with us. We don't like thinking about becoming all things to all men that we might win some. But that's Paul. That's the gospel in Paul. Sometimes we're so consumed with what we want and what we think that we never think about how we reach others. What am I willing to sacrifice to win the lost? Where am I willing to, to my own hurt, do things which actually benefit others around me? And some of that starts with how we treat one another. Is our issue and our way always got to be the thing that drives us? Or doesn't the gospel call us as prisoners of Christ to lay down ourselves for the sake of others? Isn't that what it calls us to? Isn't that what we're to do in life? Note that the Jew was sent to speak to the Roman invader words of peace. And the thing that's really striking here is that every time Paul gets in front of these Roman leaders, he acts like he's the one that's got the real power behind him. I, I come to you as a representative of the king. And he's standing before Caesar's officials. And he'll soon stand before Caesar. And still he will speak as one who is there for the benefit of Caesar. Not as if somehow his life matters all that much. You can take my life. What does that matter, Caesar? But you cannot save your own. You can't save your own and you can't really take mine. And I want to explain how this actually works out in everyday life. I have friends of mine, had the great privilege of going to two seminaries, and at both locations, for whatever reason, God allowed me to befriend a variety of Korean brothers and sisters. And that provided and afforded me a lot of great things. One thing I learned to love certain aspects of, of Korean culture and Korean food. I especially like summer kimchi, winter kimchi, a little too harsh, a little too very hot. But I like summer kimchi. A lot of things I love about it. But here's what I began to learn about the Korean culture. And maybe many of you don't know this. When Japan invaded the coast and began to spread its empire across the coast over there. They basically went into Korea and literally, I kid you not, wiped out the entire Korean culture. They destroyed every aspect of it. They did not allow Korean to be spoken anymore. They killed off the old people. 
They destroyed all the roots of Korean culture or sought to. And here's the wild thing. Reformed missionaries who had lived in that culture for years and who had come to understand that culture, the language, how people operated. When the Japanese left, when they were defeated, began to go back into Korea and teach the people not just the gospel, but they reinserted their culture, their art. All these things which they had. And what I want you to understand is that's important to begin to understand that aspect of it. Here's the real striking thing. The Japanese as a people group are one of the most unreached people groups in the world. And do you know where the strongest outpouring of missionary zeal to reach Japan is coming from? Korea. Korea. I have friends, Charles and Pearl O, who have gone to Japan and established a seminary and a Bible college. Koreans who came to America to study and to go back to bring the gospel to the invader. To the very people who sought to wipe out their culture. To wipe them out as a people. And there they sit. Preaching the gospel. Not just out of their mouths. But because they're Korean. Speaking to Japanese people. In their Japanese language. To the glory and benefit of the kingdom of God. If you can begin to get a hold of that, men and women, you begin to understand what our call in this city is. You begin to understand Paul, a man captivated by Christ, who was willing to say, I'll become all things to all men. And every time I think about that, I think about Charles and Pearl, who've been willing to become Japanese. That they might win some. Knowing all the history. Knowing how their families were mistreated. This is the power of Christ through His gospel. And it's costly. Make no doubt about it. The gospel is costly. It costs Christ His life. And He bids all those that would follow Him to come and die. It's costly. Die to yourself. It is effective. It does what it sets out to do. And it is glorious. It brings glory. In conclusion, then, I want you to think about these questions. What or who really captivates you? Really? Are you suffering for the gospel and its advancement? Not didn't ask if you're suffering. I asked, is there anything in your life that you can go, I really am suffering right here. I've really examined this and thought about this and it's really not because I'm a jerk. It's really not because I talk too much or I don't say anything. It's not because I... It really is because I've been willing to stand for the faith. That's why I'm suffering in this situation. Is the knowledge of the gospel seen in your living missionally? Is it seen? Notice, I haven't asked you how many people you've won to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure I necessarily like that language. How many people you've been used to bring people to Christ? I haven't asked you that. The question is, are you compelled to want to see people through you coming to faith in Jesus Christ? 
Do you do things about that? Are you called to mission? I ask you some of these questions so you will seek the repentance. Because see, every one of us has to say on one of these questions, well, there are other things that captivate my heart sometimes. Lots of times I act like I'm suffering for the cause, but really I'm suffering because of myself and my selfishness. And there's lots of times I haven't given the foggiest notion to my coworker, to the student sitting next to me in class, to that guy who I talk to every time I go by the newsstand downtown, or whatever it is. I haven't thought twice about where he will spend, or she will spend, or they will spend eternity. And so the first thing it ought to do is drive to repentance. And then we ought to remember its power and its purpose. And that it is the remedy. And these are the things that made Paul great. Not Paul. The Gospel. Christ. That's what made Paul great. Paul is not laid before us as a measuring rod to judge ourselves or others, but rather as an encouragement in the midst of our hurts, our struggles, our temptations, our failings. Paul's Christ is our Christ. And I long for us to be captivated by Him. To be willing to suffer for Him in fulfilling the call He has placed on our lives and glorying compelled into the mission of reaching the lost that He has called us to. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.